but she was trying to write a book that was warning. The first line of the book is, the American experiment is in danger of failing. And she thought that sounded pretty alarmist, but she was trying to sound an alarm, but she ran out of time. The press doesn't like to cover bipartisanship because they think conflict and impasse is a lot more interesting than cooperation and getting things done. Uh, partisanship isn't the problem. It's uncompromising partisanship. Welcome to the Purple Political Podcast, the podcast here to have a lot of very interesting conversations, maybe find some solutions, maybe a debate here and there. And today we got an excellent guest for today's episode as we plan to talk about bipartisanship and some of the intricacies behind that. So let me introduce my guy here, Alan, and let him introduce who he is and what he's about. Hi. Uh, Riddell, my name is Alan Rivlin, and I'm the co-author, along with Cheryl Rivlin, and my uh, mother, who passed away, Alice Rivlin, of Divided We Fall, Why Consensus Matters. All right. Yeah, it's a very interesting book. Uh, Can you kind of explain what it's about, uh, the general idea behind the book and why it was created? Yeah, the book started out, I would say, during the Obama administration, when everyone was focused on the deficit. There were two deficit commissions, Simpson Bowles and Domenici Rivlin. Domenici Rivlin is my mother, Alice Rivlin, and Pete Domenici, a senator, a Republican senator. Simpson Bowles was appointed by Obama, and he put my mother on that. So she was the only person serving on both those commissions. They had, had a lot of experts testify. Uh, they uh, both uh, looked at the problem from all these different angles, and they arrived at about the same solution because of arithmetic. There, there, really, was, uh, there really was a fairly simple set of answers to how we get rid of the deficit without putting too much pain on anybody, taxpayers or uh, beneficiaries of government programs. They solved the problem but the politicians couldn't solve the problem. None of that stuff actually passed into law. They were in the middle of these big fights with countdown clocks and shutdowns and threats of government default. So my mother concluded, our economy isn't broken, our politics is broken. We know how to solve our economic problems, but our, our, our political system can't do it. So from that vantage point, she started looking into the future and getting very worried if our politicians can't solve our problems, the public is going to get upset and they are going to challenge our democracy. Well, this was all before Trump, but she continued it after Trump got elected. But she was trying to write a book that was warning. The first line of the book is the American experiment is in danger of failing. And she thought that sounded pretty alarmist, but she was trying to sound an alarm, but she ran out of time. She passed the book to us. My, my wife, Sherry, and I spent three years trying to get her vision out to the public while the world was getting worse. But her, her warnings were getting more on target. So we knew we had to get the book out. So that's pretty much the process is we just kept going along her vision. And as we were writing it, the things that she was worried about were happening and we, we started realizing we had a book. We didn't need to sound her alarm. Everybody could see the alarm, but she also has a whole lot of solutions and a whole lot of depth of analysis. So that's where we end up with is, is in 2022 with 
with uh, with the book that we have, but we think it's a book that's very relevant to what's going on now. Okay, there's a lot of things to kind of touch upon there. Uh, first, one of the first things you said is something regarding a deficit. You may have kind of already elaborated, but I don't know if I missed it. Can you elaborate what you meant by like deficit and what issue that your uh, mother was trying to solve? Well, the government for a long time has been taking in uh, less money than it wants to spend. And there are structural reasons for that. The last time we had a surplus was when Bill Clinton was in office and Newt Gingrich came in and threatened to shut down the government, threatened all the things that the current Republicans are, are talking about doing again to try to get spending under control. But it turns out people like their government much more than Republicans think. So that ended up failing. The Newt Gingrich had to back down, but they came together and they got rid of the, the deficit through a combination of slowing the rate of spending in some areas and raising more revenue in some areas. And by bipartisan agreement, they got four balanced budgets in a row. Now, go forward next to when Obama's in uh, control and all the Republicans were talking about a balanced budget amendment. They were all saying they were against the deficit, but they, they couldn't agree with the Democrats on how to get there. The Republicans just wanted to cut spending and the Democrats wanted a balance, cut spending and raise more tax revenue. That's what they couldn't figure out. The fact of the matter is we're right back in the same place. Republicans are complaining about the deficit. Democrats say they want to do something about the deficit. We spent $5 trillion to fight COVID. It was called the moral equivalent of a war. But after World War II, which was the last time we had our finances this far out of whack, we raised taxes a lot and slowed spending and got the budget back to balance. We paid off World War II debt. I think we're going to need to do the same kind of thing and pay off the COVID debt, or we could find ourselves where, where, where things are so out of balance, we start seeing it in, in uh, interest rates going up and inflation getting worse. Oh, yeah, that's happening. Very, that's very fair, very fair. So basically, from what it sounds like, kind of the initial uh, Kickstarter of her creating the book and her worries being uh, kind of implemented regarding bipartisanship is the fact that the uh, regarding the deficit and the inability to kind of move forward with that. Is there any other factors that played into it or was that the Kickstarter and then she moved on from that idea? Well, everything's related to everything else. And I know this show spent a lot of time talking about how the, we've gotten so polarized and uh, we've gotten so negative in our politics. And uh, so she looks at those trends going all the way back to, uh, to World War II. She actually goes all the way back to the founding of the nation. Our, our nation was founded in conflict between different factions and it was a system built to try to keep any one faction from taking over. And we still have all those things in place. But the system was also built because half of the country wanted to maintain slavery and half of the country thought that that, that was wrong. And so they built a system where states have a lot of rights, but the federal government also has rights. And the, the, the point of disagreement has always been, I mean, through all of our history, whether the federal government has the right to tell the states that they can't discriminate, they can't segregate, that all of these things. That's been the main 
fulcrum for the entire uh, uh, partisanization of uh, our politics. So the book traces that history, and then it goes into economic analysis, and then it goes into political science analysis. It's, it's, it's a pretty deep dive into the discussions of how do we get to where we are, and how do we get out of it? Yeah, definitely understand. And you're right. For the for the most part, this podcast is very much in tune with conversation, discussion, not trying to demonize or toxify the other side just because of an ideological uh, identity. So I, I'm very much in tune with that. Um, so I do want to kind of dive into bipartisanship a little bit more. Um, for the most part, when it comes down to it, by a Democrat, Republican, conservative, uh, liberal, left and right, um, a lot of it kind of derives from the reactionary versus the revolutionary, and kind of that's kind of how everything was built up from that. So um, this kind of like a thought experiment. Oh, before I even do dive into that, um, well, well, this is how we'll do it. This is a lot of a thought experiment. So, in your opinion, can you kind of dive into? Um, the positives of bipartisanship and afterwards can you dive into the current negatives that you see that's harming our current american society okay i can do that um but it's going to end up being a positive and a positive in some sense because uh, okay. i'm actually uh both alice and sherry and myself we're 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 realistic but we see some reasons for, for optimism around the idea of bipartisanship. Let me get there. First, what we find is that bipartisanship really does happen much more than people think, less than we need. So the fact is the press doesn't like to cover bipartisanship because they think conflict and impasse is a lot more interesting than cooperation and getting things done. And so they'll spend a all year long last year on will Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema give in to the pressure from the progressive wing of the Democratic Party and move that Build Back Better bill through. And, and that was stuck. And that's what the press wanted to talk about while the president was following two tracks. He had a bipartisan track that got him the, um, uh, the uh, infrastructure bill, the CHIPS Act, the, there was progress on uh, firearms legislation, that John Stewart burn pit bill for veterans health, um, and, and funding the U Ukraine uh, in their war against Russia. They were, I'm leaving out a few big ones. Uh, there was a lot more progress going on in the bipartisan path than the, uh, the Democrats only path, uh, which eventually the compromise was made between uh, the moderates and the progressives and they, they took a bill that was half that size and passed that. Altogether, that's a whole lot of progress for, for Joe Biden to uh, and the Democrats to run on. Um, so what we find in the political science literature is, in fact, most bills that pass do pass with, with support from both parties, including the leadership uh, on both at least one chamber of the minority party. And that so what just happened is what has been happening uh, all along, it's just that so many problems are not getting solved. We've reached impasse on immigration, climate change. Uh, you can go down the list. There's all kinds of bills where we just haven't been able to get to that bipartisan place. 
and we just agree to fight it out in the next election. And then the next election doesn't change as much as we think it will. And we're still in that impasse place. So, so in that sense, the, there are positives of bipartisanship. The negatives are we do have very polarized politics and we do have people not talking with each other, but shouting at each other and mostly just trying to pin blame uh, on the other side. But if you look at all the COVID relief bills and the other bills I mentioned uh, in, in Biden, we've been having a lot of bipartisan successes when it matters, when the country's really challenged by a crisis or uh, just needs to get things done. Okay, so from what it sounds like, you're saying for the system of bipartisanship is very beneficial. Um, but you mentioned the fact that there are certain things that don't get passed, that don't get implemented because of this conflict between the two sides. Is that a is that due to the fact that these laws or or the ideologies on both sides are so different, or because these uh, laws or bills being implemented are not kind of fine-tuned enough for it to be realistically passed. What do you think is what the bigger problem or the bigger uh, deterrent in the in the circumstance? Yeah, um, in the book we say, and I always speak of the book as this three of us authors. My my mother had the vision for the whole thing, but my wife my wife and I, Sherry and I. Uh, did so much research and writing that it, we can't tell what she started and what we finished. And so, but what we say is, um, you know, all that, I forgot where I was going with that. Um, uh, uh, oh, that uh, I'm stuck. <laughs> oh, um, no problem. I can repeat it. Um, so when, when you referred to bills and laws not being passed, my question was, what do you think is the biggest deterrent, the ideo ideological split between the two sides or the fact that the bills themselves are not fine-tuned enough to get passed in the first place? Now I know how I wanted to finish that little story, and it is what we say in the book is uh, partisanship isn't the problem. It's uncompromising partisanship. And what started really with the... Uh, Americans for Tax Fairness, uh, uh, Grover Norquist, at the beginning of the Clinton administration, actually while Bush was still president, they started saying not one penny in tax increases. And we have the same kind of thing of uh, uh, gun rights. Uh, the NRA says not a single uh, bill can pass that limits the rights of, uh, of gun owners. And we have some of that now on both sides. It really did start on the right. But these lines in the sand, not a, not, a, not a penny more, not a penny less, whatever it is where you are uncompromising. And then you have uh, the, the left has picked up the same strategy on many different issues. And uh, the, the, the idea that compromise is bad becomes a real impediment to solving problems because the whole system is set up around compromising. And there are some things where it's hard to imagine compromise, but the, the, I mentioned the gun rights in the NRA. The other side, the, the gun uh, limitation, the harm reduction, safety, uh, gun safety people, they've always taken the stance that we'll take any compromise. We just need to start making incremental progress. Can we do background checks? Can we do this and that? And so, so the reason sometimes we have 
impasse is because one side is just stuck in a place where they just cannot move forward. And I think that's really where these longstanding, if you say, if you try to do a comprehensive immigration bill, where there's a path to citizenship, but more border security, where there's, you know, uh, uh, tests in place and things to make sure that it's difficult to become a citizen. But if you work hard and follow the rules, you can become a citizen. Some people will say that's an amnesty bill and try to end the conversation right there. Uh, and it's that kind of uncompromising position taking that has become the center of our politics. I mean, we, we have uh, the, the term rhinos means somebody who's on the Republicans who will talk to Democrats. We have uh, people criticizing moderate Democrats as being sellouts to their party uh, because the majority of the party is uh, progressive. But they're not. The majority of America is not progressive. It never has been. The majority of, of America is not Trump supporters. It never has been. Uh, and, uh, and no faction can take over. That's the way the system is set up. Very true. Um, however, I do think the current generation makes things interesting with the implementation of social media and technology and its effect on the younger audience as they grow up making the 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 divide between the two parties a lot more dynamic is what i'll say for that but before i want to go into go into that one thing that you said was very interesting um let me just remember now i'm kind of blanking what uh you just said Oh, so when it comes down to it, you kind of iterated that there's this uncompromise between the two sides on certain things. Why do you think that uncompromise exists? Do you think it's a people thing or like you said, uh, is there something even deeper behind it? Well, I think that you're you're starting in the right place to bring in the, the role of technology. Um, what we've evolved to, I mean, we used to have two political parties and they raised the money, they decided what the policies would be, they figured out what the message was, they used their ability to get that message out to try to get voters to the polls. That whole system broke down. We now have what are called network party structures. And now I'm quoting from, uh, from one of the political scientists in our book, uh, and I can't remember which one, but, but we'll just keep going with that. These network party structures where the fundraising can be done online, the message development and finding the message for the audience is either Fox News or MSNBC. They, that there are people determining the message that aren't part of the party. They're part of the network party structures and those interest groups, like you know, the, the on both sides of abortion, on both sides of uh, guns. They're very much a part of that. Their economics say the more extreme position you take the more attention and money you'll get. And that has been a big part of pulling our politics farther and farther apart to more uncompromising positions. Now, can I pick up on what you were saying about young people? Yeah, go because, for it. Because young people are using those technologies in new ways, but something amazing happened in this last election. And I think it, it underscores everything we're trying to talk about in this book because it's true that we're polarized, but um, there, is a, there is a supermajority of Americans that believe in racial justice. 
there is a supermajority of Americans that believe in democracy that's determined by sharing ideas, checking the facts, logic and reason, and then we have votes and then we count the votes and uh, uh, whoever wins is elected. It's a minority that think that we use propaganda and bullying and deny the election results and try to overturn a legitimate election. So that um, supermajority goes from progressives to moderate Democrats, moderate Republicans, independents, and even includes some Republicans who just don't buy into the crazy. And that supermajority played itself out in this last election and especially among the votes of the young. So while we see this, you know, older, whiter, uh, uh, angrier tone on, there used to be something called Twitter. I don't even know if Twitter's still around anymore. I, I <laughs> hey, who knows if it'll survive <laughs> in the next few weeks? I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> but, uh, you know, on, on all those social media and through those other, that, that is an older, whiter thing. Something else happened in this last election. There's a super majority that in, in favor of women's rights and the right for women to make their own uh, health decisions. And that turned out in this election. And there were everybody's theory of what would happen in the election that might be good for Democrats did happen. Uh, they got out their vote in 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 the cities and and among uh, 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 people of color. They got suburban Republican women to, to ticket split, to cast one vote for a conservative uh, 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 governor and then uh, cast a vote against a Republican uh, running for Senate who seemed like they had been drinking the crazy juice. So in that sense, a whole lot of good things happen. And it, again, I, I, I keep being an optimistic guy, our democracy is under a very serious threat, and we have to be vigilant and continue the struggle past this election, uh, continuing into next year when the Republicans are coming back into the House. Uh, and it, a lot of them, I don't have a problem with Republicans. I have a problem with Republicans that deny the election results in 2020. I have a problem with Republicans that that want to undermine my democracy by saying that elections aren't fair. And unfortunately, a lot of those people are going to be in positions of power in this next Congress. So part of the job of those of us who want to see the supermajority win is to separate those people from the Republicans that uh, that can be reasoned with and uh, uh, engaged in uh, bipartisan legislation. Yeah, for the most part, it's very true that technology has played two very interesting aspects in the current generation of politics. One is it can be very deci uh, decisive in terms or it can be very toxic is what I'll use in terms of the separating the two sides into bigger and bigger radical extremes and create more and more radicals based on some abstract logic that inherently I think makes no sense a lot of times on both sides. And then there's other aspect where it's uh, giving younger individuals more and more information, more and more research, uh, resources to want to know more about politics, to want to know more about their politician, to get more engagement on understanding the politician they're voting for. 
Well, one thing I will point out in terms of like um, what you were saying is it definitely seems like a lot of these situations, especially when they go to college, is we know in terms of college institutions and in terms of young people in general, they lean left, they lean liberal, they lean Democrat. So in that sense, with the uh, te- if we're focusing on this aspect, if more and more people more and more young people are getting influenced by social media technology and becoming democratic and becoming democrat doesn't that uh negatively impact bipartisanship as the in future generations the side of the democrats will be heavily or be the majority compared to republicans wouldn't that be a bad thing for bipartisanship no uh first of all i hope what you're saying happens um, I, I do enough. feel strongly that uh, Democrats need a better appeal to those people who are not going to college. And I think that that one of the, the things that worries me is if the Democratic Party becomes the college educated party and everybody who doesn't have the opportunity to go to college finds agreement with the Republican Party. And, and to a large degree, that's happening and that's not good. And it's not the way things used to be. Uh, so I think it's very important that Democrats find outreach to communities that are trying to find their way forward without college. But I do agree with you that uh, we, I think the, the Trump version of Republicanism uh, did great harm to the Republican Party, but it was already in trouble. It was, it was really searching for a reason to be. And Trump realized there was an opportunity to defeat the whole Republican Uh, establishment, but what he replaced it with was Trump, which was based on a lie. And that's very bad news for thinking people moving forward. I think that the the Republican Party is going to have to rebuild itself. But bipartisanship can happen and must happen, whether one party is strongly in control or uh, the parties are very closely divided. And it's probably can happen better when one party is strongly in control than when they're closely divided, but it's possible in both circumstances. And so I don't see more Democrats as being a threat to bipartisanship, but more uncompromising Democrats would be. Okay. So with that said, you can't really dictate whether or not a Democrat's going to be uncompromising once they have the the power and influence over the Senate, the House, uh, the Supreme Court, or uh, the President, VP, whatever. So you can't really you know when time comes whether or not they're going to be uncompromising. So at the end of the day, the the idea of bipartisanship is kind of like okay, just in case there are those people, you have some combat of force on the other side with republicans or even vice versa to make sure that there's at the very least some deterrence against one another so with that said if the democrats keep getting voted and this is just hypotheticals if the democrats keep just getting voted in and you find out like most of them are uncompromising and then all the bills that the democrats want are passed and all the bills that the republicans want are not passed then wouldn't that be problematic uh it would not because things are getting passed and really the 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 whole story of divided we fall why consensus matter available in bookstores everywhere um the whole story is about what happens when nothing happens 
when we get gridlock, stalemate, um, and bipartisanship is generally the solution to that problem. And it, getting away from uncompromising positions is the solution to that problem. That's why we say un, we want people who can compromise, not people who are against compromise. But um, th th there, there is uh, a long history of bipartisanship during times when uh, when one party ruled. Now, the Democrats were ruling from the end of the, the Great Depression uh, all the way until the Reagan Revolution. Uh, Democrats were largely uh, under FDR and under Johnson. They had huge majorities in uh, the Senate and House. And they passed tremendous amount of progressive legislation during that period. But it is not true to say that they passed progressive legislation because they had so many Democrats. That coalition in both uh, under FDR and under Johnson included a whole bunch of white Southern segregationist Democrats, uh, the, the so-called Dixiecrats uh, led by Strom Thurmond. And so when FDR was in power, he made some compromises to that group and passed some things with mostly Democratic votes. And Social Security passed with overwhelming majorities of both Democrats and Republicans, but there were provisions in it that made it so that it did not cover most African-Americans, the, the descendants of slaves uh, were not covered under Social Security initially because it excluded um, uh, agricultural workers and domestic workers. That was changed under Truman. But most of the agenda that FDR passed, he went around those Southern Democrats uh, and worked with Republicans. And so most of the legislation at that time, because there was a disagreements within the Democratic Party, were bipartisan bills for the GI Bill, the, the, I mean, all those things that we talk about as being the great, uh, the, the, the New Deal programs. And then by the time Johnson comes in and he's trying to pick up uh, 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 President Kennedy's agenda on civil rights, he faces a filibuster by Strom Thurmond and those same group of the, the Dixiecrats, and they go to the Republicans and they break the filibuster with Republican Senate votes and are able to pass the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, fair housing and all of that. And Johnson, the day that the Civil Rights Act passed said, uh, I think we've lost the South for a generation. And he was talking about Democrats have lost the South for a generation. Well, that turned out to be right. I mean, all of those Dixiecrats either changed their party to Republican or they were replaced by somebody who was a conservative Southern uh, 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 Republican. And that is what gave uh, Ronald Reagan enough votes uh, to pass his legislation in the 80s. So it, it, even when you have a large majority, there are always going to be disagreements, Democrats versus Democrats. And so if Democrats had a large majority, there, it would still be easier. And we learned this just last year. It would still be easier to pass legislation with Republican votes than to try to do it with just Democratic votes because Democrats don't all agree. And then you don't have those other votes to, to fill in the gaps. So, I mean, last year we learned with the stalled Build Back Better bill that eventually got passed, but all those successes in infrastructure and everything else that, that Biden was able to do working with McConnell, um, it's easier, I got this as a mathematical formula, 
it's easier to get 60 out of 100 senators than to get 50 out of 50 Democrats. And that pattern has played out. It played out at the start of the Clinton administration. It played out at the start of the Obama administration. All of them struggled with Democratic majorities in both the House and the Senate to pass bills that were Democrat only. So sometimes having those majorities in all three chambers, it, it makes you reach further than you can get agreement within your own chamber. And you're not going to get any help from the other side. And then you get stalemate and you get stuck. Okay. So I want to dive into this a little bit. Um, so for me, my personal, so this is my personal opinion about um, this, the idea. So for me, when it comes down to it, I think you could definitely say, and I, I would agree that the progressive nature of America was very much needed to reach where we are right now in terms of civil rights, in terms of women's rights. There, You can go down the line, obviously. Um, I do think in our current society, the aspect of uh, freedom and rights that America has is reaching a very interesting point where it's becoming very abstract. That's my personal opinion. So that abstractness is kind of playing into um, very interesting opinions like on the radical left is what i'll say so i'm not really worried about like sure the the majority in general from the senate or the majority in general from or just having the democrat majority in all three branches i'm not worried about that in particular but the hypothetical is more so the aspect of it being an overwhelming majority to the point where we know that the democrat is completely dominating so my question is do you have a fear that because of how easy like this is a hypothetical maybe 10 years down the line do are you worried about if there's a like such a majority that the democrats can just pass bills that they will make a huge mistake that will ultimately negatively impact america for the foreseeable future i'll be honest with you i would have that fear about the other side uh i I worry that if the Republicans were completely in charge, they might make a huge mistake. Uh, I don't have that same fear about the Democrats because um, they're reasonable people who believe in the truth and can be persuaded by facts and evidence. And uh, I, I don't disagree with them generally on what they're trying to do. Now, yes, it is possible that the Democrats could uh, uh, get into a place where there's an agreement to spend so much money, we're in trouble. Uh, and I, I do worry that it, people will say, well, if you can spend uh, to fight COVID, then why can't you spend to fight uh, poverty uh, or, or something like that and get back into the same kind of trillion dollar uh, bills to, to, to fight every ill. That's that's something that I would worry uh, on the, the, the very progressives might want to do, um, but I don't think they'd be able to do it because our politics is not divided 50-50. Our right. politics is divided a third, a third, a third. And, and that's been very durable for a long time, uh, that there's a third that, that are very strongly conservative, a third that are very progressive, and about a third that are in the middle. And you always get a supermajority if you can grab the middle and include that with, with, with either one of the wings. But neither of the wings has ever been a majority. Uh, so that's why you have a circumstance where there are 50 Democratic senators, but there are two that just simply say, 
I didn't say I was a liberal Democrat. I said I was a Democrat and I'm a moderate. And uh, the Republicans will say, we never got to do what we wanted to do. We wanted to end Obamacare and John McCain wouldn't let us. And the Democrats will say, we wanted to give child tax credits, but Joe Manchin wouldn't let us. But that has been the story sort of all along. If you don't reach for the center, uh, you don't have a majority and you find you can't get much done. Okay. So are you saying that Democrats would be aware enough to keep to the relative center rather than move more and more left? Um, well, let's be very specific about this if we can. There okay. is a, a subset of Democrats that are anti-corporate. Right. They really, they really think that corporations are the, the cause of all of our problems and the capitalist system is suspect. And right. they, that is their strong belief. And that, that, that it's just come up with that. That is well-established radical economics that has real, you know, that there's a lot of bones there. I'm not saying this is a frivolous point of view, but an anti-corporate Democratic Party could never be the majority. That there, there are too many people who believe that uh that that what we need public private cooperation we need to let the corporations thrive and move forward we just need to regulate them better so they don't make us sick they don't get all the money you know that there is a natural tendency of capitalism to uh towards inequality and it's gotten very bad and i think we need public policies to work against that kind of inequality that should be almost our top priority. That is our biggest economic problem right now is too many people have too much and there's too large a number of people who don't feel like they fit in. They can't get economic security. And they, some of them are in our urban centers. Some of them are in rural areas and some of them are in the, the broad sections of this country that are largely exurbs and suburbs of our big cities. Uh, where the factories have all gone and the agriculture got taken over by the housing development. And people were looking around saying, what kind of jobs are there besides Wendy's and uh, Burger King? So that kind of addressing our economic problems is real. But if you say the way we're going to do it is we're going to hammer down the nails of the capitalists, I don't think you've got a majority. I think you need to find a way to do it where business succeeds and brings others up rather than saying I'm anti-corporate and I'm not going to compromise if the medical insurance industry isn't told, get out of here, we, we can do that through government-only policy. That is the limitation of the, the, the far left. I don't think that they, an anti-corporate Democratic Party will ever be anywhere near a majority. Interesting. So I think... The fact that you brought that up is very interesting because one of the first things that came to mind when uh, when thinking about this hypothetical future is their effect on capitalism, is their effect on based businesses. Because there's a, obviously there's a, there's a insinuation that there are people on the left that really hate big corporations, and for the most part, in terms of what you were referring to. I agree in terms of the issues behind the 1% getting richer, the middle class declining, more and more poor people are, are being poor. There's there's a problem there that needs to be solved. I agree. But my, my follow-up question is, what do you have more assurance for? A system put in place where um, the potential 
of a overwhelming majority Democratic side could potentially lead into that anti-corporate philosophy later on in the future or system focus on making sure that, okay, you you still have uh, the other side relative, not obviously ultimately equal, but relatively equal to the point where they'll make sure unless it's like fine tuned that you won't be doing something crazy in terms of a corporate bill affecting capitalism, uh, capitalism in a very negative way. Um, so what do you think you have, what do you have more assurance for in terms of the long-term future? The, the first thing or the second thing I said? Yeah, I, I'll go with the second thing. Um, and the way I would say it is uh, that the voters will, the, the, the more Democrats need to reach beyond Brooklyn and Hollywood, the more they need to reach beyond San Francisco and Seattle uh, and these sort of hotbeds of progressivism uh, and get to voters in Iowa and Michigan and uh, uh, Missouri uh, to try to win states, Texas, the more they're going to have to be what we are, what Democrats already are. I say we because I was a Democratic political consultant for a a long time. Then I wrote a book on bipartisanship and I have to be careful. Um, But but that's really the point. Um, Our book was written by three Democrats who my mother was sort of the more the moderate establishment wing, but she was moving more to the left at the time of her death because of the inequality problem being so bad and so durable. Um, my, I'm to the left of my mother and Cherry is to the left of me, but all of us came together and to try to present one idea, which is the more we can listen to each other, cooperate, try to say, okay, I, I, I can agree with part of what you're saying. Let's build on that. The more we can get done. And so it's in that sense that, um, that, that the, what Democrats already are is a coalition between very strong progressives in those areas where only a very strong progressive could win, but there also are an awful lot of Abigail Spanbergers, and there are an awful lot of uh, 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 representatives that need to appeal to suburban voters in order to win, and they are who they truly are. Abigail Spanberger worked for the FBI. She's she, she's a, a, a real moderate. She wants to not defund the police. She wants to fund the police. You know, to, right. those, those positions exist in the Democratic Party already. So I think the way forward is uh, not to stop, not for the progressives to stop advocating for what they're fighting for, because right. they are uh, the beating heart of the Democratic Party. But they need to understand you can't do that in, in Ohio. And, and and win a race in Ohio, you need to be a different kind of Democrat that's always been there. Uh, one of the things I, I like to say is Democrats think that, that no Democrat can win in North Dakota or South Dakota or Montana or Iowa, or you, you look at those states, Democrats used that there, there's uh, uh, five states, which means there's 10 senators in those plain states. I think I'm leaving out Nebraska. Um, so it's Nebraska, Iowa, North and South Dakota, and Montana. Democrats used to have eight out of those 10 seats when Jimmy Carter was president. Even when Bill Clinton was president, they had seven out of those 10 seats. 
it's only been recently that we can't win there because Democrats used to represent the West and the prairies and, and, and those parts. We used to have a lot of Democrats from the union, unionized states like Ohio and Michigan. And in the last election, we started, or Ohio has been turning red for a long time. Michigan is solidly blue and, until it went for, for Trump one time. Uh, we need to have Democrats that represent those people. So we need to be a, a progressive slash moderate party, a center left party in order to ever be the majority. So that's why I don't worry about things going too far in one direction. We need to reach in the other direction to, 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 to get more stuff done. Yeah, I think for the most part, I agree, um, because the the general idea for like all Americans or people in general is for constant improvement, the constant change for the most part, that everything could always be better. But there should always be a point where you understand that if you do things either too quickly or too extreme, you can destroy the whole system you're building in the first place, right? So when it comes down to it, um, let's talk about the system itself then. Bipartisanism, how it's utilized in America right now. What is like some of the things that you think can be improved? What are some of the solutions that we can implement to kind of fix the the big inefficiencies of uh, bipartisanism currently? Um, well, I I want to take that from from a, a long term agenda to an immediate agenda. Okay. I think there are some things that can be passed not in the next Congress, but in a lame duck session between now and the next Congress. And I'm gonna take. I love the fact that this show we can talk take some time out for a, a couple of stories and if not, but. We need to talk about the story of Barack Obama right after the Tea Party got elected and what he called his shellacking. And suddenly they were a very strong rightward turn in our elected officials. Everyone on the Democratic side was depressed and dismayed and despondent. Barack Obama, according to the reports we read from, from the, that night, he had an inspiration that this was an opportunity for him. So he made a deal with Mitch McConnell. So this was Barack Obama, Joe Biden, Mitch McConnell, and John Boehner, and uh, the other Democratic leaders. Uh, and what they did was they extended the Bush tax cuts, which was what the Republicans wanted. And Obama figured that he couldn't stop them. They were going to extend those Bush tax cuts. And if they expired, it would have been a hit to the economy that was very fragile at that point. Uh, coming out of the 2008-2009 uh, uh, financial meltdown. And so in exchange for letting those tax cuts stay in place, he got unemployment benefits. He got a reduction of the payroll tax. He got $1,000 per child tax credit. He got a college tuition tax credit, extension of the earned income tax credit. Uh, they ended Don't Ask, Don't Tell to allow gays to serve in the military. And there was an arms control uh, negotiation that was starting then called New Start. All of those things happened in November and December before Christmas, right after, quote, losing an election. And it, it, McConnell was ready to deal because he wanted a lot of those things not to be issues of contention in the next Congress because the new guys coming in looked a little crazy to him and he was worried what would happen. So they got that huge deal. 
I think there's just as long a list. That was called the most productive lame duck session in history. I think there's a possibility 2022 could beat 2010 in terms of some of the things that they're talking about and actually making progress on. So defend democracy with the Electoral Count Act, which is the very law that made that was unclear and made it possible for Trump to have his coup. Um, you have to clarify that the states can't replace the uh, the slate of voters to the Electoral College um, and and that the, the vice president's role is ceremonial. He's just there to count the votes. So that bill has gotten out of the House. Mitch McConnell says he's willing to 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 talk about passing it, which is the same as sending up a balloon to see if if he can get away with it. And I think he will. Um, and I think that Democrats should say, fine, let's pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act at the same time. Uh, Republicans, like I said, they supported the Voting Rights Act when it first passed. There were more Democratic votes against it than Republican votes against it. They, they voted unanimously to support the Voting Rights Act uh, a, a few years ago when it came up. Then the Supreme Court invalidated it. Try to get that passed in this session. That may be more of a reach. Um, they're talking about the Respect for Marriage Act, which is uh, allowing people to marry anybody they want to in any state. Uh, they're going to have to pass a budget bill. Uh, in doing so, that will uh, include a lot of Ukraine funding that uh, some Republicans are talking about it being controversial. You won't find Mitch McConnell thinking funding Ukraine uh, support is controversial. And there's a National Defense Authorization Act that would do a lot of things. That's something that's really on the Republican agenda, but uh, that's room for compromise there. Whether or not they can raise the debt ceiling so we don't have another threat of the shutdown or do something about dreamers or something about abortion, those may be harder to, to achieve. They may be possible. Um, but I think there's a possibility that right away there are things that we can agree on. Abortion's really tricky. I, I need to let you talk. I have talked too much, but abortion's really tricky because Republicans are now locked into a position where they're on the wrong side of the majority. And that came out in the last vote. So it's going to take them time to figure out how they can get out of the box they're in. But the box they're in is hurting a lot of women who now have to travel to another state or uh, have other uh, rights taken away from them. So they need to figure this out quickly because I don't think Republicans really want to fight on the ground they're fighting on right now. Uh, when they find out that most Americans don't agree. Yeah, to touch upon that a little bit. Um, yeah, for the most part, I don't see why... Th this goes ha hand in hand to something I mentioned earlier, is that they're so stuck in their ideo ideology. And even the logic they say, you know, uh, it's all of it to life. They stay stay steadfast on that point so much. They don't give leeway to the exceptions that need to be talked about and the circumstances that go beyond that sometimes. So for the most part, yeah, the I don't know what when it comes to the 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 act or bill you're referring to. What is it? Uh, does it? I didn't look into it. Does it plan to re-implement Roe v. Wade or do something different? There's a couple of different things that are being considered. The one act that um, is probably the easiest because it does the least, but it's called the uh, Women's Health Protection Act. Uh, it's okay. a, a representative Judy Chu from California put in. And it, it died in 2021, but the idea of it wasn't to reverse 
the the Dobbs decision about Roe v. Wade, but it was to reverse the the the, the things that Texas was doing, trying to make abortion illegal by uh, having uh, 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 people, uh, I guess, uh, deputized to uh, turn in uh, their own the citizens of their own states, uh, charge them with a, with a, a civil offense. The, um, um, or performing uh, an, or aiding an abortion. So that bill just tried to make that kind of practice illegal because it, it's ridiculous. Um, uh, efforts to try to codify Roe v. Wade on a national level would be the, the much higher uh, bar to reach, but uh, the public would support that. I mean, where where most people are in the public is uh, they, they, they don't believe in the abortion should be available to everyone on demand and they don't believe that there should be no exception no abortions no exceptions that those yeah. two positions are, are are the two extremes and almost everyone in america is somewhere between those two and the, yeah. the rest of the details they don't want to think about uh you know they they don't they don't want to think through all of the exceptions but the one thing they they know is in this last election we fought Republicans who used to be for no abortions, no exceptions, that that was because they were part of these network parties. And that was the position of the anti-abortion, uh, anti-choice groups. Well, they all ran that way to win in the primaries and then found out that wasn't a very good place to be. So they started emphasizing, yeah. oh, I'm for exceptions. Uh, I, I don't, you don't have to worry about me. I believe in exceptions. Well, that's not really where mo most of the public is. You can't have an abortion except if you're raped or it's incest or your life is in danger. They believe that th the right answer is much more in the middle than that. Uh, basically, that you should have an abortion if you need one. Uh, they, they may not go all the way extreme and say that the public should pay for it uh, because some people in the public see that as a, 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 as, a as a moral wrong. Uh, but somewhere between available for everyone and, and free and available and no abortions, no exceptions is where most of America is. And the Republicans have to get from no abortion, no exceptions to no abortion, some exceptions. And then they're going to realize that position isn't defensible either. Uh, and, uh, and we have a long way to go on this issue, but um, it, 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 it's frustrating when a party is stuck in their ideology and can't realize uh, that they need to they need to change their position if they want to uh, uh, maintain the support of women across America. Yeah, it's a very uh, the discussion behind this topic is something I plan to have a discussion because it's a very nuanced. There's so much layers behind it, but the bare minimum, the 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 realization is that these exceptions do exist and they all need support. Regardless, there should never be a situation where they you you say no to these people. And if you want to go beyond the the beyond that, that conversation could be had. But to even entertain the no exceptions is ridiculous. That's out 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 like absurd. And like we spoke about, that's kind of like one of those. Oh, this is my ideology. This is my religion. This is what I've been told. So I'm gonna stick to it regardless of the logistics behind what I'm actually saying. Right. So. Going back to the, the prior uh, things you were mentioning in terms of the give or take is basically how it sounded like. You know, you mentioned the Obama example and then you mentioned the current uh, situation and the hope that there might be some give or take. So are you saying that 
the the solution it should always be uh you know some excessive give or take you know i'll i'll give you some wiggle room republican or democrat and then we can get all these bills passed is that the is that the primary solution or is there more to it it's the right instinct um details matter and there's some things right. that you can't compromise on um i, I mean uh, uh we 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 don't allow uh states to pass discriminatory laws anymore right uh, yeah it took us a long way to get there and that was a hard you you you, you can discriminate you just can't put it into law uh, i mean it, i'm not saying discrimination is over but discriminatory right. laws are over and um i mean one of the one of the you just talked about the abortion and that's one where people are really dug in and it's part of my religion and then you look at gay uh gay relationships and the way people have changed that kind of conversation could have happened 20 years ago where somebody said that's an abomination that's against my religion that that has society has evolved on that question uh as as a lot of things changed i mean we we, we found out we knew people who were gay we knew, you know, I mean, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, you start realizing that uh, that 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 it's it's something you can live with. And uh, so that's why the Respect for Marriage Act uh, is moving through. There are no Republicans who are going to stand up right now and say they're not none. I don't say they're zero. Right. There are very few in uh, in in Republican circles that are going to stand up and say, I continue to, to think that marriage is a man and a woman and that's God's will. And and uh, and we need a law against uh, people who love each other getting married. You know, even in Alabama, even in uh, Texas, you can't pass that law now. So to get it off the. Uh, to get it off the agenda of where the two parties disagree, I think the Republicans are going to be very happy to allow a, a Respect for Marriage Act to pass uh, uh, in a lame duck session. Okay. All right. So with that said, um, I think that makes a lot of sense. But in terms of the long-term solution for, for, this, uh, for this system, yeah, um, even beyond that, do you think there's anything systematically or even socially or culturally that could be done to make sure that the system is more effective? I think something to and you can kind of touch upon this if you want to something that should be um, thought about is the need because th this is kind of what this podcast is about is a need to kind of discuss the finer details beyond the ideology. So. Is there something that can be put in place to kind of get at that eventually? Or is there just in general a way for us to make sure that we're passing laws a little bit more effectively in the future? Well, our chapter 11, not bankruptcy, but chapter 11 of our book um, has probably about two dozen specific things people can do if they want to support more dialogue, more discussion, less ideological impasse, more bipartisanship, more uh, 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 civil discourse in our okay. society. And uh, the list is not any silver bullets. It's a it's a bunch of small things that we know we can do. And right. it's 
joining all the organizations that are based around strengthening our democracy and good government. And a lot of them are bipartisan. We only listed the ones that were bipartisan, but that's your common cause and your uh, bipartisan policy center and, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the National Center for Civil Discourse and and, and there's hundreds of them, the Brennan Center for Justice and, and the fair vote from uh, Stacey Abrams. So one, join others to agree with you and work on some aspect of the problem because the far right and the far left, they work hard for that microphone. You know, I mean, they're organizing, they're raising money, they, they are passionate about their views and, and you can't stop them. They have a constitutional right to to express their opinion, just like everyone else, the right to petition your government and, 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 and all of that. But the people who, a lot of people say, but they're so noisy, they're so loud, uh, they dominate the discussion and there's nowhere for someone like me to turn. And I'm here to tell you, there's organizations to turn to, to try to work with others, to work as hard as they do, to make that microphone as loud uh, for people who want to defend our democracy and, and reason in the truth. The other thing I'll say is this election was to some descent, to some large degree decided generationally. And the if you look at voting by age, the the older people were much more Republican, the younger people were much more Democratic, and people split their tickets and they found those election deniers and they voted against them. Well, yeah. I will take I will place a bet on who's going to win between the older people and the younger people in the long term. And that's the younger people because the old people are going to die off. And so that makes me very optimistic that these new technologies we were talking about that make it possible to only make it possible to be intolerant are being used by young people to promote tolerance and dialogue and discussion. And yes, we've seen how bad Facebook can get and how bad Twitter, if it still exists, I don't even know um, how bad it can get, but it's not a one way street. You don't extrapolate that completely into the future. Somehow uh, the, the idea of democracy, not Democrats, but democracy and coming together as a nation has won three elections in a row. Uh, the 2018 midterm, uh, the 2020 election, you can deny it, but it's the fact Joe Biden won, and he won promising to be a uniter uh, uh, and to work with the other side. And then this past election. Well, saying MAGA, kind of toxifying MAGA Republicans probably wasn't the most ideal, but in general, I think he is doing that. I, I have a trick for him. Uh, somehow he got himself to ultra MAGA whatever. And all you have to do, you don't have to identify the people who are against democracy. They identify themselves. If you believe in democracy, then you count the votes and you find out who won and Joe Biden won. If you want to undermine democracy, you say, I don't know who won or seems like there's a lot of questions or Donald Trump won. All of those things really undermine our democracy. And so Very the true. people who vote against identified themselves by saying that, that the 2020 election was, was rigged or stolen or, or whatever. And Americans did pretty good job of finding most of them and voting against them. Uh, you know, we got to convince Carrie Lake that she really lost in Arizona, but but she did. Uh, and, uh, and 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 Mastriano and all of the people who were really um, uh, 
ultra MAGA, if you will, but we know them just because they de denied the last election. They did very poorly and they ran way behind other Republicans. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, uh, uh, in state after state, you find uh, there was a lot of ticket splitting. People voted for a relatively sane person for governor, but they voted against an insane Republican for uh, Senate or vice versa. Um, uh, so uh, that, that's, my, that's my view of the long-term future is uh, this, this too shall pass, uh, at, not by itself, by people educating themselves, by people uh, listening. Oh, that's the other long-term answer is developing the skills to listen to the other side more. Uh, broadening our media diets, uh, listening to things even if they make us mad so we understand what's making other people mad, uh, and uh, joining bipartisan groups in your own community. Uh, if you go to the National Center for um, uh, Civil Discourse, uh, which uh, is one of the groups we talk about in this book, they have these models of uh, uh, citizens uh, coming back. The trick is, if if you if you show up on one Tuesday and meet a bunch of people who you don't agree with, and you all talk about what you don't agree about, nothing changes. Yeah. <laughs> but if you come back every Tuesday and start to have conversations with people where you learn that you know they like soccer, you like soccer. They uh you know that they, they they like pizza you like pizza their kids go to a, a school uh at the same school as your kids uh when you start seeing people as people who have opinions rather than just seeing them as their opinions uh we can all move towards uh, a greater understanding and finding the supermajority that believes in our democracy yeah i mean you've i've talked about it plenty on this podcast that when it comes down to it, the need for discussion, the need for conversation. Honestly, I've also said this on my own that there are some people who you know look to understand, but I don't even think your main goal should try to be try to understand the other side because sometimes ideologically, religiously, situationally, based on how you grow up, sometimes you won't understand. You won't completely buy into what the other person's saying. But at the very least, finding some level ground, some compromise, is a huge step forward. I mean, you hear it all the time. America is one of the big things America was built on is compromise in the first place. So compromise comes a long way. Understanding the other side and, like, uh, developing discussion i do i do want to say that yeah for, i definitely agree with the whole hey we lost uh they stole it hey everything sucks like i will never ever buy into victim mentality and that's literally the same thing republicans can't go like oh yeah these groups do this this and then act like a victim when they go run for election like you're being inconsistent i'm not with that you gotta stay you gotta move on and try to grow whatever stance that you're trying to uh lead into so with that said one of the one of the final things that that i want to bring up that i'm curious on your on your uh on your stance about is what would you say of with a you don't even have to take it to the federal level we'll take it at a very local city level maybe what do you say a system that puts in place a an even amount of representatives on each side um like that it will always be even 
The only question is, is who the who will be the representatives for each side. So in that situation, and it's just something that I thought of. I'm just curious on your thoughts. So in that system, it will be, for example, like 10, 10, Democrat, Republican. There has to be 10 on each side. Who gets voted in is completely based on the people, of course. But there will always be an equal amount of representative thoughts on each side from both sides. What do you think about a system like that? And uh, yeah, your general thoughts. I I got a couple of general thoughts. First of all, <clears throat> the idea is uh, is a good one, um, but I think you're going to have a lot of problems with it because of one of the big themes and one of the big drivers of our problem is what's called ideological sorting, and right. that is geographical sorting. That people have sorted themselves into communities where you couldn't find ten Republicans or you couldn't find ten Democrats. Uh, I'm I'm not talking about ten people to represent the Democrats in that area. I mean, 10 Democrats at all in some some communities uh, in what we Very call fair. the And in our inner cities, it's hard to find 10 Republicans. We just did a um, an event here in Washington, D.C. Uh, with uh, the former mayor of, of, uh, of Washington, um, who um, uh, uh, was also somebody who worked with my mother uh, closely, uh, Anthony Williams, and she worked in city government, or she worked for the city uh, in an oversight role when they had a, a an economic collapse, and uh, she was uh, on the control board that first was hated, but it ended up being what the city needed to get its finances under control so that it was uh, uh, able to stay afloat. And uh, DC is very unusual, but in some sense, it's like a lot of cities. But but every single member of the city council, uh, perhaps save one, uh, is a Democrat. And we also have what's called the DC Statehood Party and the Green Party. So it's it's the battles that that erupt are between uh, progressives and liberals. Uh, and the progressives and liberals can get to a point where they're at impasse and they can't pass any legislation. And and that's OK. That's the democratic process working itself out as long as you don't get to shut down, which is where the federal government has gotten. Um, so so you whatever the group is, whether it's Democrats and Republicans or all Democrats or all Republicans, there's still going to be tensions. If the problems were easy to solve, they would have been solved. If there's a majority to do something, you usually do it. The things that don't get done are the things that are dividing people. And so that's where you have uh, uh, the problem. So I'm, I'm not sure that forcing the numbers to be equal would, would, would really be a, a step forward. What we need is more, uh, we need to fix the gerrymandering problem so people really believe their vote really matters in an election rather than it's all been determined by how you draw the districts. Uh, we need to do, there's a whole bunch of experiments in voting that are talked about in the book, like ranked choice voting and uh, top two and, and, and these kinds of different systems for voting that some states are experimenting with, in general, move things in the right direction. But what's more important even than getting more moderates elected or more partisan split changing that one way or another is the feeling of voters that their vote really matters, that they're really participating in this democracy because you go all the way back to the founding fathers the design was there that that that's the magic 
is our democracy really does allow people to cast votes that do matter, that do change the way we govern. We govern ourselves through our votes. And so any kind of change that makes people feel more like there's somebody in that chamber who represents me and what I want to do. And they don't have to agree with the other side. They have to, what you were talking about earlier, that finding common ground, even if we don't agree on everything, can we find something we agree on and pass that? Uh, that's the mentality that I think moves us forward. Yeah, in general, yeah, I agree. General. And I and I will say that the logistics behind the idea will be tough to kind of implement because of what you said in terms of the areas and whatnot. But to dive into the bill thing a little bit more, I don't know, like, I can't say I know everything about, you know, how bills are passed, but for uh, those situations where there's that stalemate, where there's no leeway being given i don't know what would you say to a system where the okay tell me if in the, uh, how much how much say does the populace have to a to a to a bill that's been evenly kind of impassed by both sides um do they have any say to make sure that it gets passed or is there any type of system where they could in, instill their will as a majority population of America to make sure this bill, bill gets passed, other than voting for the representative? That's that's a really good question, Riddell, um, because uh, the answer is complicated. Uh, and it's complicated by the system that was set up by our founding fathers. They rejected the idea of direct democracy, where you know people vote on referendums, or you know, they vote on the policies themselves for indirect democracy, where you vote for a congressperson who's then supposed to represent your views. I would say that based on all the analysis that we have in the book of the political science, the public has too much rather than too little voice in the conversations where compromise is necessary. And that is that what's what the, the politi American Political Science Association had a task force on negotiating and compromising. And that was essentially their conclusion that the d discussions have to happen behind closed doors and, uh, and, and away from the camera. When the cameras get involved, people lay down these absolute positions and the press is trying to say, well, would you negotiate on this? Would you compromise on that? And, and that's a negotiation in public. And that negotiation needs to be in private. And then you can handle it out. And here's, here's the most direct example. The only way to get the deficit under control is less spending and more taxing. And both those positions are unpopular. You have to, you know, I mean, if, if you raise taxes and you're a Democrat, the Republicans are going to say, ah, tax and spend, tax and spend. If you try to lower spending, the Democrats are going to say, oh, they want to end Medicare as we know it. They want to take away your Social Security. The exaggerations come out. There are solutions where you can raise taxes without raising tax rates. You just get rid of the deduction for that second home. You get rid of the carried interest. You close all the loopholes. We, we spend so much money in our tax code on giving tax breaks to rich people. And if you close those oil and gas leases and you, you put together, you add up the numbers, you can come up with a system that raises a lot more revenue 
mostly by increasing taxes on the wealthy who can afford it. And you don't have to raise tax rates, certainly not raise tax rates on the middle class. And at the same time, there are ways to reduce future spending by getting healthcare costs out of, that, that have been growing faster than the economy to grow at the rate of the economy or just slightly faster than the rate of the economy. There are ways to get, uh, social security can be solved relatively easily by a couple of relatively small fixes. Right now, rich people get to a certain threshold and they stop paying into social security. They ought to get rid of that cap and let people pay social security on the whole thing. Small adjustments to the cost of living uh, adjustment, things that people will not really feel in their day-to-day -day life and the deficit is now on a downward path the, towards getting to a balanced budget and, and we're doing the right thing. You, can't, you can negotiate that behind closed doors and say, if we pass this, both sides are compromising. This is what Reagan and, and Tip O'Neill did when they extended the life of Social Security. If, if we pass this, we get the deficit under control. That'll help with inflation. Our, fiscal and monetary policy will both be pushing in the same direction, but you can only do that if you all jump together because each of the elements in that is unpopular all by itself. And one side will blame the other and it'll never pass. So if the public's in that room, when that's being negotiated, it's not gonna happen. But if you can negotiate the deal and say, let's do these changes, the Democrats and Republicans agree to them, the public would reward that because you'd be solving a huge problem, the deficit and inflation, at the cost of some relatively minor changes that aren't what people's big fears are. Okay. So my follow-up to that is, uh, there's twofold uh, here, is the first thing is, I, w I would, for, so for my, for my hypothetical, I wouldn't say enter them into the negotiations because i agree they should never be a part of the negotiation itself but in terms of an impasse giving them the option to choose from one side or another as an individual why would that be problematic not the fa okay they could say whatever they want especially the vocal minority they, they're annoying sure but for the most part how it turns out is that there will be a specific side at the end of the day there will be a majority at the end of the day that has a specific side that they want to advocate for so if that's the case negotiations are done two sides everybody vote and that and and there's uh that's all said and done so what do you think about something like that um I mean, only I, I for just to clarify, only for situations where there's a huge impasse that that won't move or budge on either side. Uh, I, I I think there's something to that. Um, there was a <clears throat> there was a movement uh, to try to take impasses like uh, the, the 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 budget situation uh, to citizen juries. And let them work through all the details that would be available to a congressperson. Let them hear the briefings that a congressperson would hear. And my mother was involved in some of these as the expert budget briefer, because that's what she was expert in. And uh, they were able to solve the problem just like uh, uh, the, um, uh, the, 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 the commissions that she served on. And in that sense, I think that then the public is really coming in uh, with 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 
with information and facts. The, the fact of the matter is there's a myth that if you just cut all the waste in the spending, uh, you, could, you could balance the budget and solve the deficit. And that's just not true. When, when people look at what it is, they say, well, you can cut the budget, just don't cut Social Security or Medicare, don't cut national defense, don't cut, well, you gotta pay interest on the debt. When you, when you borrow the debt, you gotta pay it back. Uh, don't cut education, don't cut the national parks, don't cut you know, the EPA. Pretty soon you've listed the entire budget and it's all things people wanna keep. If there were things to cut, if there was a budget item for waste, we would have cut it. It's that, that myth is, is propelled. I mean, I would say that's a perfect example of one side uh, not willing to compromise. Uh, the, the Republicans position that you can't raise taxes one penny means that we're just constantly in conflict and constantly in debt. And uh, we need more revenues because the public really does support government of this size. It does create more opportunities. There isn't anything we want to cut that's like, I'll cut your thing. No, I mean, sorry, foreign money we give to foreign governments is a tiny, tiny, less than 1% of everything we spend. I mean, it, when, when you go through and look at the things people might say you would cut, there's, there's not that much to cut. You have to look at the future and you have to look at the big programs and you have to bend them slower to, to make cuts that meaningfully reduce spending. And that, get, that really comes down to getting our healthcare costs under control because uh, the nation's getting older and uh, our healthcare is more expensive than any other country in the world. Um, yeah. so, so that's the only way to do it. Well, if you do all of those things on the cut side, you realize you've got to get more revenue. You got to get rid of those uh, Trump tax cuts. Uh, they they didn't create a, a you know the economy we have is the economy with those tax cuts. I don't know that they're uh, uh, so wonderful right now in, in terms of what they're contributing. But to the degree they're contributing anything, they're contributing stimulus, and the economy's overstimulated. We have a very low unemployment rate, and we have rising interest rates and rising inflation, and that's economy that's overstimulated. So tax cuts are inflationary, tax increases are anti-inflationary. So if you want to control inflation, make the wealthy pay their fair share of taxes. It means that housing for everyone becomes more affordable because the wealthy bid out the middle class, which bids out the, the lower middle class, which bids out the poor. Um, too much money out there in the hands of the wealthy causes inflation. Okay. Yeah, I do think there's something to that. And I can definitely see the um, the argument there. I think especially something needs to be said, considering this uh, age of technology, the ease in which a citizen can participate in politics, even just voting um, nowadays is, you know, obviously way better than back in the day. It's way more inefficient to get the public involved to vote on like every little thing. Now, if you really wanted to, you can have the public vote consistently because everybody has a phone everybody has a laptop for the most part for the most part generally um so it's very interesting at the very least so trying it at a local level to see its efficiency i think would be interesting um but another aspect you talked about is like the negotiation behind doors and uh the the discussions 
So you mentioned, obviously, you mentioned a lot about the 1%, the rich people. Isn't another concern that people would have is the fact that these negotiations behind door is more so beneficial these rich people considering the aspect of lobbying and getting under deal undercut deals between politicians and these rich corporations, getting those breaks that you were referring to. Isn't that one of the aspects that people would be concerned about behind these negotiations behind closed doors? Uh, absolutely, and they should be, um, because I mean, uh, if you look at all of these threats that we face, including the budget uh, crisis uh, that we had that I started talking about, and then the, the financial crisis uh, that and the way we responded to it, that made inequality worse. We we had policies to protect the banks and protect the housing industry and. Uh, you know, mostly protect the mortgage lenders and 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 all of that. We we bailed out the auto industry, uh, but who was bailing out the people buying the autos, the people living in those homes, the people working in those uh, businesses that was closing down? COVID came and the same thing happened. And uh, uh, what we say in the uh, the afterward uh, to to the book because it it happened after my mother's death, and that's where Sherry and I were allowed to speak, but. We had agreement to run big deficits to, to fight COVID, and it was bipartisan. But the form that it took was the two parties saying, I'll borrow money to help my people out. I'll, I'll let you borrow money to help your people out if you let me borrow money to help my people out. So we had suddenly had money for everything. Uh, and the businesses got bailed out and the financial sector soared uh, because of the, the easy money policy. And the inequality is just getting worse. And when we pass big policy responses to big crises, it, it makes that problem worse. The, 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 what you get is inflation, which hurts the people at the bottom much more than it hurts the people at the top. And so we do have a system that is completely out of balance. And here I completely stand with the progressives in saying, you've got to pay attention to that. This system is getting to the point where it's unstable. And it's like the Gilded Age. Uh, the Gilded Age, the period uh, right before the turn of the, you know, when 1900, just before 1900, right around there, was a period of great inequality, The business sector completely owned Congress. I mean, people just said it out, at, you know, who, which senators do you own? Um, and, uh, and the system was completely serving of the wealthy. What happened was the economy collapsed in a series of depressions. There was uh, a, a pandemic, uh, but we had then the progressive and populist eras. And eventually, you know, you get to uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, who was a progressive and uh, and uh, uh, FDR, and uh, we had a new system where the, where the working man was sort of in charge. You've got to fight for those rights, and people are doing it. Uh, but you're absolutely right. You need to elect Congress people that 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 reflect you and your values, uh, and and will not be uh, bought by the wealthy. And all of us have a vote in one congressman, except for me, because I live in the District of Columbia, and we don't even have a congressman person. Fair enough. 
All right. Well, I think we went over a lot of very interesting information. I think the overarching idea is that people should be willing to have the discussion, the conversations, be more involved in politics, especially this younger generation. Vote, uh, you know, your representative in vote. Uh, the more people vote, especially for your particular side, if we got more progressives, more liberals, more Democrats voting, then that's that's good for them to get their bills passed. And Republicans just got to keep keep up at the end of the day, if we're being completely honest. So maybe it's uh, something to think about on the other side as well. Um, any final thoughts that uh, before we wrap up? Well, first of all, this has been a terrific discussion. These have been great questions, and I really appreciate it. I, I think the, the the final thought is uh, uh, listen more and talk less. It's 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 like the Alexander Hamilton, the, the the musical was running through this whole show, uh, the whole book as we were writing it, and uh, that that talk less and smile more. Um, it. It, it is where this comes down. It is about dialogue and listening and participating and understanding uh, that uh, if you feel strongly about politics uh, where you live, people probably agree with you. Try to understand people who live in a different area and why they see things differently. Uh, and uh, it, it, it really comes down to getting outside the big cities if you're a Democrat uh, understanding the big cities if you're a Republican. Uh, we've separated ourselves. Uh, we need to find a way to come back together. And uh, the technology is there to help us. We're, we're having this conversation. Uh, people are able to, to, to listen to it and participate. Uh, the, the technology got made this problem worse, but the technology is not going away. Uh, we have yeah. to figure out how to use the technology to, uh, to find our own connections. Yeah, very true. Exactly. Uh, well, I uh, hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. Appreciate you coming on, Alan. Uh, I think I agree. This was a really good conversation. I'm very enlightening and very insightful, of, of course. Um, all of the information will be in the description. All this information will be on my website, of course, as well. Can you uh, say the name of the, the book again for the people? The book, is, the book is Divided We Fall, Why Consensus Matters by Alice Rivlin, Alan Rivlin, and Sherry Rivlin. And yes. uh, it's available everywhere. And uh, we have a website called Zen Politics, Zen like in Zen Buddhism, zenpolitics.com. And there's also a website called dividedwefall.org, which isn't actually our book, but our book is, is, is included among a lot of others that are writing on these topics. Uh, about our divided government and uh, and how we move forward and and unite our country uh, to protect our democracy. Yeah, of course, uh, for sure. Uh, all that information, make sure you check it out. Uh, light, a lot of enlightening information. The book is very interesting as well. Uh, hope you guys enjoyed. Rate it five stars, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Leave a review. I read the reviews. Hope you guys enjoyed. Y'all have a good one. Take care and peace.